All right, well, good morning. We're so glad you guys are here with us. It is a beautiful day today. It's been a beautiful uh, weekend, and you could be a million places, but you're here with us, and we are grateful for that. If you're new, like they said, stop by the welcome desk, celebrate recovery. I know Jordan said something. It's a great program, recovery program. We've been offering that for a while, uh, and there's a lot of exciting things happening in that ministry. And so if you know somebody uh, that could benefit from that, make sure and let them know about that as well. So we are in this Ember series, and just to kind of make it make sense kind of where we're going, uh, this is a series simply about faith. And just the elements of faith, the seasons of faith we go to when faith is hard, when faith is something that we have to work at and all that stuff. And we're using this idea of embers um, and these fire images is this idea that sometimes faith can be hard to understand. Sometimes it gets to a point in our life where it feels like it's not a raging fire anymore. There's just some embers that we're trying to hold on to. And so we're going to talk through all of those stories. Um, But what I want to do today is kind of introduce an idea. um, And we're going to kind of start at the beginning of what faith and kind of our faith comes from. Um, And it's a little bit after the beginning, but we're going to try to paint a picture to help it make a little bit of sense, okay? And so one of the central figures when you open your Bible, or if you've um, ever been to church, you probably at some point have heard the story, or at least some of the story of a guy named Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, and Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you, so let's go praise the Lord, right arm, right? Anybody grow up in church? Yeah, weird stuff we do to our kids. And so, uh, so anyway, so Abraham's the central figure. Hebrews 11 is in the New Testament, and it is a chapter that is written about these central figures of faith that we read about, the stories that we know. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the author um, starts off with this idea. They say this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for. So it's based on this hope, um, these things that we want to believe, these things we hope are actually happening, and assurance about what we do not see. And so um, the idea behind this is this, is that none of us see God, okay? None of us have seen Jesus, but we see these things that give us these assurances. We see God working in the world and in our lives. And so we have these assurances, even though we don't see it. And this is what the ancients were commended for. So all of these stories of these people that we read about, these are real people uh, that are trying to figure out life, trying to figure out how they relate to each other, relate to God, just like you and I. And so they're commended for these things because they didn't see it all the time either, but they're going in faith hoping in these things, they're seeing God work in their life, and it's allowing them to move forward. And so drop down to verse 8, and it says this, By faith, Abraham. And again, Abraham is a a central figure. So today, just so you guys know, is going to be a lot of history, right? And so I know a lot of you are like, we don't like that part. And some of you are like, we we love it. Um, So just everybody just shake it out. We're just going to get through this together. Okay, it's going to be fine. Uh, And so uh, maybe the most famous name outside of Jesus that comes from the Bible is Abraham. In fact, the three of, if, if not the three major, the three of the most popular religions in the world all trace their roots back to this story of this man. So obviously Judaism, because he's a Jewish, he's an Israelite, and then Christianity, and then also Islam. All trace their roots back to this story. In fact, at the center of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is about three-fourths of your Bible, so uh, we have the Old Testament, the New Testament. Another way of saying this is the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Uh, If you have any Jewish friends, uh, like I do, um, they just refer to the Old Testament as like the Covenant, (laughs) the Testament, all right? And and so, but three-fourths of this Hebrew Scriptures um, starts and kind of descends from this story of Abraham. 
And so what makes his story so compelling and why it's so important is in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, uh, we see a story about a man who's called to leave his father's household and everything familiar to him and to set off onto a new journey. And the catalyst for this new journey that he's going to go on is that a covenant is made between him and God. Now, maybe you've heard this word covenant before, um, but you're unfamiliar with kind of the fine workings of it. So what we're going to do today is we're going to try to make a really complicated idea very, very simple. Last week, we introduced the word exile, which again is a central story that runs throughout the Old and New Testament, the idea of being in exile. But covenant is one of these words as well that runs throughout the whole story. And so to help you understand kind of the worldview that they have when it comes to a covenant, um, the simplest way to say it is it's how you made a deal, okay? And the way that you made a deal was that you would take two parties of people and you would agree to terms on what this deal was going to look like. And then what you would do is you would cut a covenant. In fact, we don't say cut a covenant anymore, but it is kind of the origin of the phrase you're probably familiar with, we're going to cut a deal, It all stems from this idea. And literally, in a covenant, you actually cut a covenant. And so the way that this would work is you'd have these two parties, and they would reach an agreement on what the deal is going to look like and what's going to happen, what this transaction is going to be about. And so you have these two parties. And then what they would do, and I know for some of you this is going to be the hard part, but again, ancient world, beginning understanding of God and man and all this stuff. So once they agreed to terms what they would actually do is they would take an animal, okay, sometimes a goat, sometimes a calf, okay, and they would take this animal and they would literally sacrifice the animal and then they would cut it in half, right down the middle. Two equal parts, perfectly cut, two halves laying next to each other and they would match these halves up perfectly but leave a little bit of space in between these two pieces of flesh. And so they would cut this, this, this idea. Now, typically when you did a deal like this in a covenant, you had two parties entering into the covenant. You had a superior party, okay, the one who had more at stake or the higher position um, in reputation or also in this, and they were known as the suzerain. And so they were the first part of this commitment would be the suzerain. And then you most often had an inferior party in this deal, and this is the main beneficiary or the lower position, and they were known as the vassal. So you had the suzerain and the vassal. The suzerain is the person that that is basically offering something, and the vassal is the one that is receiving. So once a deal had been struck between these two parties, one of two things would happen. Either both parties would then walk in between the aisle that had been created in between the two pieces of the once living calf or goat or whatever, either both of them would walk through, or a lot of times what would happen is only the vassal or the inferior, the one benefiting, would walk through. And as they would walk through the covenant, what they would say is something like this. May what's happened to these things happen to me if I break this deal. It was a very serious thing to enter a covenant. And the reason they they sacrificed an animal and did it this way is not only the imagery of of what could happen to you if you break the covenant, but also the understanding that this is going to cost you something. This is not something that we take lightly. See, in their world, your word was your bond. 
And so this is a very, very serious thing. And, and so in this deal, we have God, who's the superior party. Okay, anytime you enter a deal with God, just assume he's the superior party. Okay, that's kind of how it works. And so he, he's the suzerain. And then you have Abraham, who is the vassal, the one benefiting from this. But in this story, what we're going to see is Abraham represents more than just Abraham. He also represents humanity. But we'll get back to that idea here in just a second. So Abraham, he enters this covenant with God. He has this calling to be a father of a new kind of people, one that's going to show the world the redeeming love of God, and that God is different than maybe the way the world has perceived him to this point. So what you have to understand about, and I'm not trying to tell you something you don't know, but hopefully you've heard this before. Um, in the ancient worlds, and even in parts of the world still today, um, there was a cyclical view of history. And what that means is simply this. You lived where your father lived, and he lived where his father lived, and he lived where his father lived. And not only did you live there, but you worshipped your father's gods, who worshipped his father's gods, who worshipped his father's gods, who worshipped his father's god. For example, for some of us, um, we're Christian just because our families have always been Christian. Or you're Catholic because your family's always been Catholic. Or if you're Jewish, you're Jewish because your family's always been Jewish. And, and so that's kind of that worldview. So, so you lived there. You lived in this region. And in that world, there wasn't a lot of like, for some of us, like, you know, that idea of we go to college, we end up getting out of college or we get into a trade. And then we go and we go from, you know, Bullock County to we move to New York. Not a lot of that happens. Okay. But let's just say that's the idea. And so you're going from one idea and understanding of the world to possibly a different one. That very rarely existed in this world. It was cyclical. And more than likely, you would also do what your father did. If your father was a stone cutter, you're a stone cutter because his father was a stone cutter. And so you had this idea that everything was just destined to repeat itself. And it was cyclical over and over and over again. In fact, in other words, for, for them and their worldview, there was nothing new. It was just the same old happening over and over again. And maybe for some of us, we're not too far from that. Maybe for some of us, that's still how we believe the world operates. And the center of this cyclical worldview was the gods and the way in which the gods interacted in the world. And, and the gods are going to keep doing what the gods always do. So Abraham is a story about a man who has an encounter with a god and the god invites him into something new. That may not sound that weird to you and I, but for this worldview, this is a completely unheard of thing. Abraham is going to step out of the cycle of what's always been and step into something new. In fact, there's this old ancient story that I've shared with you guys before. It's an ancient tale. You won't find it in the scripture, but it's a Hebrew tale about the night that Abraham left his father's house. And so at this point, he's at an encounter with who he believes to be the living God. And so they say in the story that on the night before, he's, he's getting all this stuff together and he sees all of his father's idols kind of displayed out there in, in the living space. And he says that Abraham gets so frustrated that his dad and his father's dad and his father's dad have bowed down to these idols that he no longer believes in. He gets so frustrated that he takes a hatchet and he cuts all of them up and he cut, takes down the wooden statues and the stone statues and he breaks them all apart. And then just for fun, what he does is he takes the hatchet and he, he lets one idol remain. And he takes the hatchet and props it up against that idol. And the story goes on to say that the next morning when he's getting ready to leave, his dad walks in and his father is furious. And he says, what have you done to all of my idols? And Abraham's response is, well, it looks clear. It looks like that one did it, you know. 
And his father says, no, Abraham, you don't understand. Those are just made of wood and stone. I built them with my own hands. And Abraham's response is, then why do you bow down to them? And it was like this moment in which Abraham is into something new, a new life, a new possibility. This was a new idea in human history. And to understand the significance of the story of Abraham, uh, we have to understand kind of the things that have happened before. And at this point in the story, so if you take the book of Genesis and you start at the beginning, um, there is a history and a progression of violence that has begun. And it begun with one simple story about a man named Cain killing his brother Abel. And this violence continues and escalates and all of humanity kind of spirals into this greater and greater conflict as men, mostly men, are reaching for power and substance in their life and they do it through violence. And it gets to the point to one of the most depressing verses in the Bible that we see where where there's a verse where it literally says that God was deeply troubled in his heart because of what man had done. Then we get the story of Noah in which the world has gotten to such a desperate place and God has seen the full wickedness of man that he responds. And you would think something like what we know happens in the story of Noah might get the attention of humanity, but it doesn't. Because just a few short chapters later, again, it's a cyclical worldview, we have the Tower of Babel. Now the Tower of Babel is simply an idea in which the men in this world believed if they could build a tower tall enough that they could actually reach the gods. And if they could reach the gods and they could know everything the gods knew and they themselves could become gods. Which is an ongoing theme in human history. Our desire to become our own gods. And so the question becomes, how much worse can it get? We keep having this thing that happens over and over again, the system of violence. And then we get introduced to Abraham, who's going to start something new. He's leaving not only his home, but he's also leaving an entire way of life and understanding of the world, which introduces the question, could the world head in a new direction? Could you and I head in a new direction? Or are we trapped and doomed to repeat the same cycle of conflict over and over again? And in Genesis chapter 15, a covenant is made between God and Abraham. But Abraham represents more than just Abraham. In fact, what God promises is that from his loins or his descendants, there will be a new kind of people for the world. And again, the problem here, as we talked about briefly last week, is that Abraham at this point is childless. At this point, he's about 75 years old, okay? We had a friend get pregnant a couple years ago at um, age 36, and she was considered geriatric. So I don't even know what you consider a 75-year-old, okay? Now, for about 20 years, him and his wife wrestle with this because they have this promise by God, but it's confusing to them. And, And one night, God takes Abraham out And he takes him outside and he says, look at the stars in the sky. Now, Abraham comes from Ur of Chaldeans, which is in the Mesopotamia region. Now, in the Mesopotamian region, almost all of their gods are stars. In this story, this God uses other gods as a prop. And he says, your offspring will outnumber the stars in the sky itself. And so Abraham trusts him. And in fact, in Genesis 15, 6, it says this, and Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The problem is, is that Abraham has a problem with the plan. 
Because at this point, he's 100, and his wife is just the young old age of 90 years old, all right? And so they're wrestling with this idea of how are we going to have this child? And so they come up with a plan. And the plan is, hey, Abraham, why don't you go sleep with our young, beautiful servant named Hagar? Worst name for a female ever, okay? But she's this beautiful young lady. She's still of the age. She can have children. Why don't you go sleep with our maid? This is not going to end well, right? All right, guys, this is a warning sign, too. If your wife tells you to go sleep with the maid, not a good idea, okay? And so, uh, so she does. He goes and sleeps there, and, and Hagar gets pregnant, and she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. But then God comes back into the scene. He says, no, this is, I told you Sarah. I told you your wife, and you would have a child. And eventually they do. At 190 years old, they give birth to a son named Isaac. Now the problem is sometimes men think that they know better. And so now you have these two sons. You have Ishmael and you have Isaac. And both of them think that they're the rightful heirs to a piece of land that was promised to Abraham thousands of years ago. And a conflict ensues between the descendants of these two sons. And if you go to the Middle East today, a conflict is still going on between these two sons. Abraham should have trusted, but in this moment, he thinks he knows better. But eventually he gets right on the back track and everything is going according to plan. His son Isaac is here, a promise has been fulfilled, and then something happens. Now to understand the significance of what's going to happen next is a simple understanding of humans. Early cultures and civilizations, um, their belief was that the gods were detached and distant. But they also had this belief that they were dependent on these gods. So even though the gods themselves were detached and distant, they needed the favor of the gods. And where this started in early human civilization and cultures, and you can track this down if if you want, um, there became this belief. And the belief was that in order to survive, we need simple things like food and water and sunlight. We need the, the seasons, we need the temperatures to go along with this. And in order for food to grow so that we can lead, um, we need certain, certain factors. We need some sun and we need some water and we need the weather to cooperate. And what happened is they started to realize that they needed food to survive, but the food that they needed to survive were dependent on these other forces like the rain and the sun, and the weather, these things took on deities. And so eventually you get to the point where the sun becomes a god, and there's a god of the rain, and there's a god of the seasons. Or or let's say, like me, you you don't just like to eat vegetables all the time, and so you like to eat some meat. And, And so in their culture, you have some cattle possibly, or some goats, or something like that, but also you would go for a hunt. And so what they found was that sometimes it seems like the hunt goes really well, And then other times it seems like it's more difficult in order to find the food. And so are there forces that are controlling where these animals go and how easy they are to capture? And so they started to believe, well, maybe these forces behind these animals are actually gods themselves. And so what happens in human history is time and time again, you get this reality that we're dependent on these forces. These forces are smarter than us, greater than us. They become gods and we have to worship them. And the way that we choose to worship these gods is that we're going to sacrifice something to them. 
we're going to give something to them. So if we have a crop and we have a good season, what we're going to do is we're going to take a portion of that crop and we're going to offer it back to the gods. Now, because the gods are in the sky and their worldview, what we would do is we would build an altar and we'd take the altar and because the gods are in the sky, we have to get the stuff from the altar to them in the sky. So the easiest way for us to do that and for them to see it is let's burn it. And let's catch it on fire and the smoke will then go up and it'll eventually make its way to the gods as a pleasing aroma to them and they'll know how grateful we are. But there becomes a system and the system has a flaw. And stay with me because this is going to be really important. The flaw is this. Let's say this season you offer 10% of your crop and you have a great year. Well, the next year you don't want to offer the same Because then what if that doesn't appease the gods? So you might offer more. But you didn't have a good season that year. So what's the problem? Well, maybe we didn't offer enough or maybe we didn't offer the right stuff. And all of a sudden, early on in human history, there becomes this anxiety between men and these forces, the gods. And the anxiety is simply this. You never know where you stand. You never know if you've done enough. Have you done enough to earn the favor of the gods? And so you offer more and more and more. We see early on in human history that humans get to the point where we'll even see this in next week's story um, where they even start to mutilate themselves. They offer parts of their body to the gods to let the gods know how serious they are. And then eventually in one of the darkest parts of human history, We get to the question, they ask, well, if this isn't working and the crops aren't working and the the slaughtered animals aren't working and even giving of ourselves isn't working, then what is the most important thing that we can give? What is the thing that we can give that would let the gods know how serious we are? And so they start to offer children. This is where religion can take you if you're not careful. And so what happens is here is Isaac and here's Abraham and Sarah and there's a moment where God looks at them and they say, what you're going to do for me is you're going to offer your son. And the worst part of the story is that Abraham isn't shocked because this is what the gods do. They can ask anything and you have to give. Now before we get all up in arms and think about how barbaric or how primitive this idea is or how disgusting this idea is, which it is, um, can I be honest with you? Um, I don't think that we've given up this practice. See, I still see people sacrificing their children today. And it looks different. We don't tie them to an altar. We don't catch their bodies on fire. But I see people sacrifice their relationship with their children to the gods and idols all the time. Families that are wrecked at the sacrifice of success and wealth and busyness and the social calendar and other relationships that you might deem more important than the ones with your kids. Or maybe it's the sacrifice of the image that you want for them and you want for them and they're not living up to it. And so before we get too judgmental, let us just know that it happens still today that we're willing to give of the most important things that have been given to us by the gods and the idols that we worship, we just call them different names. So in Genesis chapter 22, God says, Take your son, your only son whom you love. Now, important detail right here. This is the first time in the Bible the word love is mentioned. 
And it's about a father who loves his son. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. So early the next morning, Abraham gets up, loads up his donkey, takes some servants, and he, he goes. He takes Isaac. He doesn't argue, doesn't protest, doesn't drag his feet. He doesn't even ask for instructions. He knows what to do. And he's not even shocked at this request because this is what the gods do. Right? This is the story. This is the cyclical story that happens over and over again. The gods can demand the most valuable thing to you. And if you don't give it, you will pay a price. And for three days, his, him and his son travel. There's even this part in the story where Isaac looks at his father and he says, you know, well, where's the sacrifice? Right? This kid's going to need a lot of therapy if he survives this, right? And, and God's answer, Abraham's answer is God will provide. And so they get to Mount Moriah, and Abraham leaves his servants there, and they climb up the mountain to the altar. I mean, where was CPS on this one, right? (laughs) And they get ready to sacrifice his son. And I can't even imagine this moment as a father. But it doesn't happen. Because right before he's going to sacrifice his son, God stops him. And the messenger says, don't don't do this. You don't have to do this. This may be what everybody else would have asked of you. This may be what all of the other gods would have asked of you, but this is not who I am. And he says, right over there in the thicket is a ram. And you go and you offer that sacrifice instead. The other gods may demand this, but not this God. This is a new story. This is a new chapter. Now, I'll be honest with you. Even though I know how it ended, and now you know how it ended, I've wrestled with this story because it's so weird and it's so foreign to us. But, but, but then when I was reading it and studying through it a couple years ago, there was this interesting detail that we skipped over that I'd never picked up on in this story. So when they get to the mountain, Abraham, he leaves his, he leaves his servants at, at the bottom of the mountain, which you got to think, well, he did that because he doesn't want them to see he's about to sacrifice his son, right? Um, it, it, but there's this interesting little, little line in there. And so in Genesis chapter 22, it says this, stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants, the boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there. And then what does he say? we will come right back. But I thought this was a story about Abraham willing to sacrifice his son. And when I read that, it got me thinking. The question was simply this. Does Abraham know something that we don't? And I think that he does. See, he's already trusting that this God is going to be different. This isn't the same old world. This is going to be different. See, in their world, reading this context, they would have said, you mean that God didn't have him kill his son? I mean, what kind of God would stop the sacrifice? And the answer is simple, one that loves. One that wants to see human flourishing. So does Abraham know something that we don't, that allows him to have the confidence at the bottom of the mountain to say, we're going to go up here, but then we're going to come right back down. 
In Genesis chapter 15, a covenant is cut. Now, as we've said, a covenant is between two parties, between the superior party and the inferior party. And so this covenant is going to be cut. And so God looks at Abraham and he tells him about all these things that are going to happen. And so Abraham's question to God is, well, that sounds awesome. But he says, how can I know that I will get possession of it? In other words, how will I know that this is going to become true? And God tells him, go and get a heifer, a goat, and a ram. And Abraham goes and he gets them and he knows exactly what to do. He takes the goat and the heifer and the ram and he sacrifices them and he cuts them directly in the middle and he places them on each side just like you would in a covenant. And so God and Abraham, they talk about the terms. And then in Genesis fifteen seventeen, it says this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, when I first read this, I go, what in the world is a smoking firepot? All right. Now, there's this image that we see over and over again where God takes on the image of fire, a burning bush, a pillar of fire at night. It becomes the sign of the presence of God. And so this smoking fire pot and this blazing torch, it represents the presence of God. And so the Bible tells us that this covenant has been made and all of a sudden this smoking pot and this fire torch, it passes through the covenant. But then Abraham doesn't. Now, if you were paying attention to the beginning of the sermon, we explained to you that when two parties entered a covenant, you had a superior party and the inferior party. And what would happen is either both parties would walk through the covenant or the inferior party would walk through the covenant. But in this covenant, the only person that walks through the covenant, that walks through the deal, is God. The covenant that God cuts with Abraham is that he's willing to keep both sides of the deal. That even if Abraham fails, and he will, God will be faithful no matter what. That even if Abraham fails, God will still be faithful and uphold the covenant. Could this be a little foreshadowing? Paul, the Apostle Paul, will write later that God is good and he can be trusted. Jesus will later say that God will never leave you or forsake you. See, the reason this story was so revolutionary for the time, and we can't lose this, is because this is about a story of a God who gives, who provides, who blesses, who takes care of. This is a God, a story of a God that will always be faithful even if we're not. Paul writes this in his letter to the Romans. Abraham never wavered in believing in God's promise. In fact, his faith grew strong and in this all brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. 
And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit, it was recorded. It was for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was handed over to die. Now let's stop right there because there's an interesting little thing. The first covenant is of God walking through the covenant deal taking it fully on. He walks through two symbols of death as an expression not only to Abraham, but to all of his descendants, that God will be faithful in his covenant. He will be faithful in his promise. Jesus is hanging on a cross between two symbols of death. Two men who are being crucified with him because of the violence and corruption this world has to offer. And Jesus walks right through the middle, holding up his end of the deal, no matter what. Because of our sins, he's put there. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. This is a story, a very old story about a God who will remain faithful all the way through. May we have the confidence that Abraham had. See, this is an invitation, I believe. From the very beginning of the story all the way to the moment that Jesus is on the cross, an invitation that's made to us that God will be faithful, that God will be faithful to you even when we make a mess of things, that God will be faithful to me even when we make a mess of things. This is a story about a, be, about a human having a relationship with the living God. And it's a story that continues about us having a relationship with this living God. A God who loves, a God who cares, a God who provides. So when we think about faith, in the very beginning, by faith, trusting that this God is who he says he is. May we have the faith and trust just like Abraham, the confidence that God is who he says he is and he will do the things that he says that he will do. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word, God. And I know that we covered a lot of ground today. And God, I know that for some people, some of these ideas and images may be new to them. But may we not lose the centerpiece of this story. That you are a God who provided. You are a God who cut a deal with us. And you agreed to hold up both ends of it. That you would be faithful no matter what. That you made a promise to us that we could trust you. And God, you have been faithful. And God, my prayer is that we don't lose sight of that in moments or seasons when it's hard and it's difficult, may we never lose sight of the one that you're the one that walked through that fire. God, may we never lose sight of you were the one on that cross that walked through that new covenant to offer us grace and mercy and love even when we don't deserve it. And God, may we always trust in the promises that you will never leave us and forsake us. God, may we actually believe that you are a God that loves and provides. 
And God, in a world that can be confusing, in a world that can be cyclical with conflict and violence, God, may we never forget that you are a God who loves us and promises to love us. And so, God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your words. We thank you for the stories that we see men and women just like us who have faith, who come out on the other side. And may we continue to have that faith to trust and believe. So we love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Every week we come to this time, we celebrate communion together. Our trusting in that fact that when Jesus establishes that new covenant that day on the cross. And right before he makes a simple terms. You take this bread which represents my broken body. And you take this juice which represents my blood. And you believe and you trust in it. And we celebrate in that same meal that took place that night every single week here at Journey. And so as the band starts to play and we start to worship, we just ask you to respond accordingly.